unlikely savior. I carried a bag with a few clothes in it over my shoulder like a potato sack and left Waterloo. From Brussels, I took a train via Leuven. West of Liège, I disembarked at the small station of Fex-le-Haut-Clocher and asked the station master for directions to the farm. His reply indicated that I was expected there. I walked a zigzag route from the station through a pretty town of low red and brown brick buildings. The fields belonging to the farm stretched beyond an old church. The brick farm buildings were constructed like a fortress. The barns, stables, sheds, and handsome farmhouse formed a quadrangle around an inner courtyard. In the middle of the courtyard lay a large manure pile, which strangely enough exuded no smell. Surrounding the buildings, gardens and fields extended to the far distance. The farm was stocked with horses, cows, and bulls. About 40 horses and 40 or 50 cows and calves. The farmer was breeding steers and horses and had many young animals. It was a very progressive farm. I was hired by the farmer and immediately given a room in the attic of the farmhouse. It was small with little in it, but at least it was a room. It was decent, civilized. I began my work as a milker. Whenever I saw the farmer, Monsieur Roberti, in the first week I was there, I thought that he looked unwell. He was a young man, about 35 years of age, with a wife and two children. The farmer died suddenly at the end of the week. The whole place became unsettled. Farmhands gossiped about whether or not the widow could manage the farm by herself. I focused on milking. With Monsieur Roberti gone, I was left alone. The widow, Madeline, helped me irregularly. A short time later, her father and mother, Monsieur and Madame de Give, arrived from Liège. Retired and over 60 years old, Monsieur de Give was a stern-looking man. He had injured a leg and now limped, but he had been a prosperous farmer, a breeder of horses and bulls. Now, faced with his daughter's predicament, he came out of retirement to take charge of the farm. After a while, it became too much for the widow to help with the milking. She had many other things to do. Instead, she gave me more responsibility and asked the maid, Claire, to help me. Claire was the daughter of Polish immigrants. Her father worked in the mines near Liège. She had grown up in Belgium and spoke fluent French. She had blonde hair and a pale, round face with broad, high cheekbones. Claire wasn't trained, so I taught her how to milk, and she soon acquired the skill. She helped me every day, and especially on Sunday, because on that day we stopped work early. On weekends, when Claire went to visit her parents, the widow helped with Sunday's milking. I was a very skilled milker. I had learned from the Frisians, the best milkers in the world, and these Belgian farmers took notice of it and respected me for my work. I milked and cleaned the stables. I worked all the time and never went out. If the farmers were suspicious of my cloistered life, they never talked to me about it. Monsieur de Give became interested in me. I was the only worker who stayed overnight. Many were married and lived in the village. At night, the farm was a medieval stronghold. The animals were in the stables, and a solid wooden gate closed the farm off completely. One day, the old man gave me the farm key and told me to open the gate every morning and close it every night, so I became the gatekeeper. The first thing I observed on this farm was that I could eat as much as I wanted. Although the farms in Waterloo were productive, that part of Belgium around Liège was a rich area, and people were much more generous. If they were concerned about the black market, it wasn't obvious to me. Maybe its importance to them was on a large scale, not just to sell a few extra slices of bread or glasses of milk. Madame de Give sincerely grew to like me. 
She taught me how to bake bread. Once a week, every Friday, she baked 32 enormous round loaves in an outdoor oven. I was the one who always helped her place the bread on long handles straight into the oven and then pulled the handles out. In the evenings, I ate with the other farmhands in a room off the kitchen. After they'd eaten and left, the old woman would call me into the kitchen and give me another meal, a better one than the workers ate, that came from part of the family's meal. She would tell me to polish her grandson's shoes, which allowed me to work for the extra food she gave me, but having me clean the shoes was just a pretext. Later in the evenings, the boys would come visit me. They were lively youngsters, about eight and ten years of age. I would tell them stories, and they were so keen. Every night, while I polished their shoes, they ran to me to hear another story. I told them stories by the Grimm brothers, from Wilhelm Busch's Max and Moritz, and from the Bible. I also made up stories, even though I was sometimes hard-pressed to think up a new one. I noticed that after a while, even the old man was listening to my stories. Sometimes I helped the boys with their schoolwork, and in doing this, probably I revealed too much of myself. I certainly showed that I was more intelligent than I appeared to be, and that I wasn't the person I pretended to be. The old man may have talked to his wife about it. He knew there was more to me than first appeared, but no one ever said a word to me about it. When I opened the gate in the morning, the old farmer sometimes came out and talked to me. One morning he said, You know, Jan, I'd like to have your papers. I can clear you so you don't get sent to work in Germany. You can stay here. I have good contacts and will be able to fix it up completely. Don't worry. I can clear you. I answered, Ah. Uh, I began to tell him a tale. I don't have my papers, I said. I left them with my uncle in Brussels. Twice. He asked me for my papers, then he gave up. He realized that I had no usable papers, and he never mentioned it again. Nor did he ever ask me anything more about who I was. Monsieur de Gives knew that there was something clandestine about me, but he took a chance on me. I established a close relationship with him. He was a very intelligent man and saw some potential in me. He went out of his way to be kind to me and tried to teach me skills that he knew well. For instance, he asked me if I would like to learn something about horses, since he was an experienced horse breeder. Sometimes we sat up together all night waiting for a mare to foal. A horse's birth is very difficult, especially if the foal comes out legs first. The old man taught me how to pull out the foal, when to pull, and when not to pull. I appreciated his excellent instructions, and he can tell I was interested in learning. He also taught me how to breed bulls. He was a renowned bull breeder and explained to me in detail the qualities and features to look for in a bull. He owned a magnificent bull. Other farmers came to have their cows inseminated by the bull, and he put me in charge of this service, of handling the bull myself, and didn't trust any of the others to do this. Whenever a cow was to be impregnated, I had to run with the bull, lift up the cow's tail, and control the bull. Other farmhands were afraid of the bull, but the old man told me, Once the bull knows you, you don't have to worry about him. Don't be frightened of him. He won't do anything to you. And the old man was right. He knew. With 30 or 40 milking cows and many young cattle to care for, I performed a demanding job. Still, the attitude and trust of Monsieur de Gives more than compensated me. He did a lot more for me than he had to. I was much happier there than I'd been on other farms. I was well-fed and housed and made to feel like a human being. I worked very hard, although not harder than in Waterloo, and the treatment I received was better. 
I could even put my earnings under my mattress and leave them untouched for weeks. These farmers were members of the nearby Catholic Church. Everyone in the area was Catholic. The priest would visit the farm on his rounds and ask me why I wasn't attending church. The only explanation I can think of was, I have so much to do, I I don't feel like going to church. He asked me once or twice, but didn't insist. Some of the other workers, too, asked why I never went to church. Subtle pressures were put on me to become more involved with them socially or to go out with girls. I did often banter with Claire. She was cheerful and bright. She caught on to things fast. However, I didn't want to get involved with any girls. The situation was too unstable, so no intimacy ever developed between us. Claire never invited me to her parents' home. I never even went to Liège, which was only 10 kilometers away, although some of the farmhands invited me to come with them for a beer or go out with them on the weekends. I always shrugged off these invitations. I didn't want to expose myself to police checks or raids. After a while, the old couple decided I was working too hard and should have some help. Someone was picked to help me clean out the stables each day. We became good friends. He was a bachelor who lived in a village nearby and owned a small farm of his own. He was independent, but worked for the widow to protect himself from deportation to Germany. He obtained grain and feed for his animals through this work and earned extra money. This fellow always reported to me what he'd heard on Radio London. He listened in the evening when Radio London was broadcasting in French to Belgium and told me the latest news each morning. I followed the course of the war through him and wouldn't have known what was happening otherwise, and he also kept me informed on activities and events in the region. I'd been wearing the farmer's old shirts, and none of them fit me properly. I finally thought about buying a new shirt for myself. My friend said he could buy me a shirt on the black market, so I told him to go ahead. He bought a rough shirt of heavy, coarse material with wide green and brown stripes on a white background. I paid 400 francs for it, a month's wages. I'd worked 14 to 16 hours a day for 30 days to earn enough to buy the shirt. Yet in normal times, I wouldn't have worn such a shirt and would be ashamed to wear it today. This bachelor would occasionally invite me to his home to play cards or just visit, but nothing ever came of it. There were several villages to pass through on the way to his home, and I would have had to come back late at night on my own. Without papers, I didn't want to risk it. One day, the fellow said, You know, our farmer here is very close to the Germans. This was a revelation to me but people in the district were talking about it. Sometime later, I was sitting by myself in the stable milking the cows when trucks swung into the courtyard. I heard motors spinning, clatter, and German voices. I tried to crouch between the cows, hoping I wouldn't be seen, but the Germans saw me. Get up, get up, get up, was the command. Where are your papers? Who are you? What are you doing here? They were grabbing at me and scouring the place. It was a razzia. I said, wait, look, My papers are upstairs in my room. The officer signaled to a soldier to go with me to check my papers. The soldier and I went up to my room and I looked around there as if I was searching for papers. Then the Germans said something I'll never forget. Du bist doch ein armer Teufel. You're such a poor devil. Why don't you go to Germany? Your room is so bare, you have nothing here. You're so poor and don't even have a pair of good pants. You have nothing. In Germany, you would be much better off. I answered, Sure, but I was born here. I came from here. He rejoined, You know, it's... He spoke to me half in German, half in French. 
When I showed that I understood German, he forgot about my papers. Suddenly, the sergeant major walked in, announcing, Okay, everything's okay, let's go. I checked all the papers downstairs, everything's in order. What papers had the farmer shown him? I didn't know what happened and never found out. The old man never mentioned it to me and I never talked to him about it. A strange relationship existed between him and me. The old man owned a special horse and carriage that he used for visitors. One day he remarked to me, Jan, you're now in charge of the carriage. You're going to drive it whenever I need you. Sometimes he had guests in the evening after the other workers had gone home. The first time I drove the carriage, he told me to drive to the station to pick up a German general. He said, The general knows I'm sending you for him. I told him Jan will pick him up. So there I was, with a comely little horse and carriage. I drove to the station, tied up the horse, and stood at the exit. The general arrived with his adjutant. They saw me and greeted me. Jan! Jan! The general was in high spirits. He and the adjutant shook my hand. They both climbed into the carriage and I drove them to the farm. I let them out of the carriage and the general gave me ten francs as a tip before he and his assistant entered the house. I heard laughter and toasts over wine from the dining room that night. There was feasting and drinking and merriment. They stayed overnight. At six o'clock the next morning, I was again ready with the horse and carriage. The general gave me another tip after I took them back to the station. I repeated these trips many times for many weeks in a row. The general arrived by train every Wednesday night. I drove him from and to the station. He came for dinner and stayed overnight. He was the military commander of Liège. Obviously, my friend the bachelor had spoken the truth. The shrewd old farmer had powerful German connections. By now, we were well into 1944. On June 6th, the American and British and other Allied forces landed in Normandy, France. Workers on the farm couldn't stop talking about it. From then on, my bachelor friend had exciting reports for me daily. He informed me when the Germans were retreating and when the underground had begun to be more active. He conveyed the smallest details to me. He pinpointed the Allied advance. The Americans and the British are coming here. They'll soon be here. As the Allied armies approached Belgium, more local resistance to the Germans began to emerge. One night, members of the resistance occupied our farm and captured German soldiers found wandering in the fields. Deserters from the German army, mainly Poles or Baltic nationals who'd volunteered or were pressed into military service. My impulse was to join the resistance at the first opportunity. I wanted to be involved in the action, but the resistance fighters left swiftly in the middle of the night. The Germans swept back. They burned down farm after farm trying to smoke out members of the resistance who kept moving around the countryside. The farm next to ours was flattened completely. The Roberti farm wasn't touched, presumably because our boss had the right contacts. Slowly, the tenor was changing. The course of the war was changing. One day, my co-worker told me the Americans were near, already lodging in the area and turning up everywhere in jeeps. Then one day, an American jeep drove into our courtyard. Four Americans were in it. They asked for directions. I was standing in the courtyard with the widow. When I saw the Americans enter, I couldn't conceal my joy. The war was coming to an end. An end to a tangle of problems. I talked to the Americans in English. I lost my self-control and forgot myself completely. I hadn't spoken English for about six years. I'd never spoken to an American, but even with their accents, I had no difficulty understanding them. 
The Americans were surprised when I spoke English. The widow was speechless. I showed the Americans around the farm and told them a little about it. A short while later, they left. I remained on the farm, doing my job as usual. The Germans slowly pulled out and left the area. The Americans moved in but were still advancing, so resistance groups took over and administered everything. The resistance began to mete out punishment and arrest all types of collaborators. Women who had fraternized with German soldiers were publicly humiliated. One day, 30 or 40 resistance fighters carrying guns drove into the farm and pulled up in front of the house. They wanted to arrest the old farmer. Monsieur de Givre was standing mute on the front steps. Suddenly, he pointed at me and said, Now ask that man what I've done for him, which side I've really been on, whose side I've been on all along. The resistance commander turned to me. He walked over and questioned me. Yeah, I affirmed. I've been hiding here for almost a year. He protected me. It's only because of him that I'm still alive. What he says is true. There must have been some speculation and gossip about me locally because the commander and his men believed what I said. They believed the old man and me. The leader ordered his men to withdraw, and they left without further question. The old man never once mentioned the incident to me afterwards. I kept on helping Madame de Givre with the bread. She continued to give me a double supper. Everything went on as usual. A few weeks later, damaged railway lines were repaired, and train travel to Brussels was reestablished. I advised Monsieur de Givre that I was anxious to visit my uncle in Brussels. The old man knew immediately that I would never come back. His wife knew it too. They said to me, Sure, of course, goodbye, bye, bye. I saw in their faces that they knew I would never come back. They knew too that I wasn't Jan von Capella. They had known for some time that I wasn't the person I pretended to be. But they never asked who I was, never asked me where I'd come from, and I really appreciated that. The old farmer had saved my life, and I'd saved his. Our time together was finished, it would seem, but I owed him much more than he owed me. He was old. I was young, just 22, with my adult life ahead of me. Admittedly, I'd worked nonstop every day of the week. As I mentioned, I never went out. Workers used to comment, You work so hard, why don't you go out on weekends, have a little fun? Most of them didn't understand what my situation was, but Monsieur de Givre understood. And within these narrow limits, he made my life very tolerable. I owe him a great debt for this. His wife, too, was unusually kind, even though she was a tough woman. Both of them were tough and stern, but on the scale of virtues, they rated very high. They liked me so much that they wanted me to stay there permanently. To encourage this, they tried to stimulate a relationship between the maid and me. If I would marry Claire, the old woman suggested, they would set us up in a house. I wasn't eager to adopt any such plan. They wanted me to stay because I wasn't an easy worker to replace, but I needed to return to living my own life. After my experience with the resistance in Brussels, I wasn't really keen on getting involved with it again, but I was becoming more interested in joining a regular army. I thought maybe I could join the British or American army before the war came to an end. The resistance also wasn't doing much militarily, now that the Allies had arrived, and I wanted to hit the Germans where it counted, to go after them myself. In September 1944, I said goodbye to Fex-le-Haut-Clocher and took the train to Brussels. So much new activity was now out in the open there. 
People were gathering in public places again, and Zionists were starting to organize. In Brussels, I felt free for the first time in many years. It was strange to be able to walk around anywhere without running into guards, checkposts, or mass arrests. I went out to Strombeek Bever to look for Dirk, the painter, and found him there. He told me that after the last time I'd seen him in early 1943, he'd hidden a number of Jews. He had been caught, arrested, and sent to a concentration camp. He had just been released and had arrived home not long before my return. According to Dirk, I could get work with the British Army. Its main supply center in Europe was located in Brussels. Huge storage depots, most of which were used to store food, had been installed in the city. Dirk had worked there briefly, and he knew that laborers were being hired regularly. I easily found a job at the depot. They served us a satisfying meal at noon, and the wages were high. With my earnings, I could now take care of myself adequately. Since I was used to hard work, I was able to carry heavy sacks and boxes all day long. We unloaded lorries that arrived from the coast and loaded others that were going to the front. It was a massive undertaking. One Sunday, I decided to ride out to Waterloo to see what was going on there. After an absence of over a year, I dropped in at the farm where I'd worked. The young wife and Fernand were out, but his miserly mother was there. She seemed glad to see me and invited me to sit with her to have a cup of coffee. She told me what had happened in the year I'd been away, about the family and the people I'd worked with. Then she asked me to come back to work there. She promised to give me a room. I had just left a much better job than hers and was looking forward to a different kind of life altogether, so her offer didn't appeal to me. In Brussels, I was renting a pleasant room overlooking a beautiful garden, far more agreeable living arrangements than my previous ones, and was even able to save some money. My job at the depot, however, held no real challenge for me. So when I noticed that the American army was advertising for interpreters, I presented myself at the army headquarters. After filling out an application and talking to an American officer, I was tested for language proficiency. I didn't expect anything to materialize from this. And yet when I returned from work one evening, I found a message in my room informing me that someone had called, requesting me to be at the American headquarters the next morning at 10 o'clock sharp. I'd already been tested for languages. In German and French, I was perfectly fluent. I spoke Dutch and English too, though my English was less fluent at that time than I would like to think it is today. At 10 o'clock the next morning, I appeared as requested. Immediately, I was led to an officer who asked, Are you ready to join us? Yes, I answered. When? Today, he said. Jolted, I said. Oh, why? He charged ahead. We don't have much time. There's a war on. We can't wait. Are you willing to attend a swearing-in ceremony this morning? I'd been waiting for this opportunity. I snatched it. Okay, I nodded. Sure. Go in right now, he ordered. We'll swear you in. The same day, I gave up my room and the few possessions I couldn't carry with me. Several hours later, I checked in and was issued a uniform. I moved out of Brussels with the American Army that afternoon.